Welcome to Learning in Action, Heal the Divide Podnar series. Today's topic is unleashing our complexity genius, how we grow our inner capacity. And my guest is Jennifer Garvey Berger, who I'll give a proper introduction to in just a moment. So, uh, hey, I'm Allison. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Dana. Hey, Dana. Hi, excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for all your work getting us to this point. And we do these uh, as we do everything at Learning in Action because of our mission. And our mission is to heal the divide within and between. So what that means to us is that we work to heal what divides us from ourselves so that we can be more connected with each other. And part of the reason we do this work is to um, begin to come to know ourselves more fully, uh, to help our clients know themselves more fully. So if you are unfamiliar with a podinar, a podinar is a word we made up. It's a cross between a podcast and a webinar. It's interview style, like a podcast, and it's interactive with you, our audience, like a webinar. So our intentions for today are to explore how our nervous system handles complexity, to review what Jennifer calls the eight complexity geniuses, to take a deep dive into three of these geniuses, and to learn some easy to implement practices for coaching your clients to live and lead well amidst complexity and just explore these client these practices maybe maybe with you if you'd like to dig in a little bit more to them we'll see how the the day unfolds and with that i'm really happy to give an introduction to someone i think probably doesn't need an introduction you must know her so well at this point um Jennifer is the co-founder and CEO of Cultivating Leadership. She blends the deep theoretical knowledge with a driving quest for practical ways to make leaders' lives better. She coaches executives and executive teams and designs and teaches leadership programs. She's written three highly acclaimed books on leadership and complexity and how to grow the capacities we need for the world in which we live. She hopes her newly released fourth book, which we're going to talk about today, Unleash Your Complexity Genius, will change your life starting today. And when she's not working with clients and colleagues, you can find her in the French countryside where she is today, where she's bought a house with 11 friends, which blows my mind, uh, who live in community. And as she says, to try to keep the dog from terrifying the cat. <laughs> welcome. Welcome. Jennifer, it's so great to see you. Thanks. It's so great to be here. It's lovely to, to see all these faces. Yeah. Isn't it great seeing faces? It's, so it's the best. It's the yeah. best. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome. Um, so if you could talk, I mean, and I, and I have hundreds of questions about living with 11 people, but we'll, that'll be another conversation. Um, I, so speaking of living with 11 people, let's talk about our nervous systems <laughs> and, and how our nervous systems respond to complexity. I mean, 
I think we all have a little bit of a sense of how our nervous systems respond to complexity, right? How many of you feel more exhausted lately than you remember feeling in the past? Like how, for how many of you is this true, right? I, it was, it was the beginning of COVID and I started to get really curious about this question of why is everybody so tired? We don't commute anymore. We don't travel anymore. We're not doing like, we're not doing the stuff that we used to do. We used to have all these busy things and then you get into COVID and everything stops. And what I heard from my clients is they were more stressed out and more exhausted than they'd ever been before. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I got curious about that and it turns out, you know, we have these uh, two parts to our nervous system. We have the sympathetic nervous system, which is great when we're under threat, when we have to go and attack something or run from it, you know, it's, um, it's our activation nervous system. And then we have this parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of like the rest and connect and create nervous system. And it turns out the complexity uncertainty activates our sympathetic nervous system. So we're in this form of like activation all the time and it activates it so much. um, If the, if the sympathetic nervous system keeps going, then the thing that doesn't happen is, Oh, the parasympathetic like restores us. The thing that happens is the parasympathetic shuts us down into some kind of dormant hiding phase And so we can cycle between activation and kind of sitting on our sofa with a beer and a bag of potato chips and mindlessly watching TV, which is not restorative in any way. And we can just cycle through um, numbing and activation, which is exhausting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really like the image you have in your book of that parasympathetic, sympathetic you know, spiral that we can get into. Um, I love that visual. So what I'm hearing you say is that the nervous system gets really um, uh, activated in complexity. And, and so what keeps us from being able to kind of know what to, how to regulate? Our nervous system is, you know, we, we have, we've evolved for hundreds of generations to be able to handle bursts of difficulty and then long stretches of rest or, or ease. And our nervous system doesn't know, Oh, now it's COVID. So you need to do a different thing. That's not like the nervous system doesn't respond that way. Um, And the, the thing that the research into this book taught me is that actually we have to tell our nervous system some things we can learn from it but we also need to teach it. Uh, How do you teach a nervous system? Um, uh, Well, there are all these ways, right? There are these ways of of treating our bodies, treating our surround, treating our context that that actually teach our nervous system things. Mm -hmm. So before we get into each of those, the eight complexities we're going to talk about, will you speak a little bit to the difference between complex and complicated? Sure. Um, so this, this idea comes from my son is going, the sun is going down. So let me just flip on a light. This idea comes from uh, the work of the complexity theorist, Dave Snowden, who makes this determination. 
And uh, he has this notion that complicated things are like tricky. They're hard, but they're solvable. So any of you who's ever used an accountant or a mechanic or a lawyer to get something solved for you, uh, you go to them, you expect them to be able to solve something for you. You kind of agree on what the outcome is going to be. And that's a complicated thing, tricky, but solvable. We're good at that. We actually tend to love problems like that. Um, the thing that really gets our nervous system unsettled is the unpredictability of the complex space. So complex challenges or environments are by their nature unpredictable. We cannot know what's going to happen next. And it turns out that is very, um, that's not what our nervous system likes the best. What our nervous system likes the best is I think I'm going to know what's going to happen next. So any of you who have um, ever had anything to do with raising a child, there were probably lots of times when you were thinking to yourself, I wish I knew how to make this come out the way I want it to come out, right? This conversation, this age, this school year, like whatever the this is. Um, but you didn't know how to do that. You could try a bunch of things, but you didn't know. Parenting is complex. Running your own business is complex. Uh, uh, living. <laughs> Relationships. Moving into a house with 11 friends. These are complex things to do. We don't know how they're going to go. And, uh, and I, I think COVID introduced us to the idea that a lot of the things that we thought were kind of manageable and complicated... We thought we understood them and we thought we knew what was coming next. We were probably telling ourselves a story about that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, we can't tell ourselves that story anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm really appreciating now the difference between complex and complicated, but because it's, it's helped me realize that, that I have a client who's trying to do what he does with complicated with complex. He's trying to apply com a complicated way of being to something that is complex and it is enormously frustrating. This is a classic challenge, a classic thing. I think our, 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 our first impulse is to do what we've done before only harder. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're faced with complexity, we think, oh, I've seen something like this before and we do that thing and we, then we double down on it and then we triple down on it. And then we, you know, change out the executive team because we need people who are better at their jobs. All these things that we do in order to get a handle on a complex thing that we can't get a handle on. Yeah, that we so want to control. Yeah. So right. can you speak to um, a bit about the eight complexity geniuses and how you figured them out? <laughs> Sure. Um, so my, um, my friend and co-author, Carolyn Coughlin, and I have been talking about this for a long time, like a dozen years, let's say, um, and experimenting as we do with ourselves and with our clients, as well as reading about the many thousands of experiments that psychologists have been doing in, in this sort of field. And we clumped these ideas together, these questions. So we had two questions that um, 
that we merge together. One question is what's good for our nervous system? Because one of the things we knew is that actually right now, uh, we are all leading our own nervous systems and leaders are leading the nervous systems of others. And we act as if we lead ideas or organizations or teams, but actually what we are leading really is nervous systems. So the first thing we needed to find out is what, what's good for leading our nervous system, our own nervous system, and then the nervous systems of others. Um, and then the second thing we needed to figure out is what's good for leading and complexity. And when you put those two things together, you get this subset of things that are great for our nervous system and actually great for the nervous systems of other people around us. And so this is where the eight geniuses come up. Love that. Love that, that. Yeah, the first thing that came up is like, yeah, as a leader, they have their nervous system and the nervous system of their team, and then the leader and the leader, the nervous system of the whoever leads the organization of the entire company, and they're in a system, and so on. And and I and I I suppose you, I mean, was there something that you found about the impact of someone who actually is leading their nervous system in a healthy way that? the ripple impact of that? It's actually unbelievable, Allison. We have some clients who are really thoughtful about this, right? They've been really working on it and they've been really beginning. So the first genius is noticing, right? These geniuses are things that happen automatically and they're good for us automatically, but actually we can amp them up. Right. So this was another this was another thing that we were looking at is is what's great for us automatically that automatically happens in our bodies, but actually we could decide to do on purpose. And the first genius is noticing, because really it all starts with noticing, right? It all starts with what's going on for me right now. I have been to so many executive team meetings where somebody says something like, I'm not frustrated right now. It's just that the solution is right here and we need to be getting to it. Really? Does he really think he's not frustrated? Does anybody think he's not frustrated? Right? Like this is a person who's frustrated. This question is how do we notice what's actually happening for us in this moment? Mm -hmm. And um, what we tend to notice is that guy is wrong or that guy is annoying. What we don't notice is, wow, my heart's beating really fast. Or I'm really activated right now. I think I'm angry or something has been violated for me and I don't know quite what it is. We don't really notice this. We just notice that guy's a jerk and I wish he would stop talking. This is not the same. <laughs> this is not uh, the same. So the first genius is, genius is actually noticing how we're responding to complexity. That's exactly right. That's wow. exactly right. And we can't really do anything without that one. Yeah. Okay. So then the simplest thing we can do in that moment is breathe. I know that everybody talks about breath and somebody gave me feedback about this in the book. And they were like, you know, like everybody talks about breath. You know what? It's because it's the best thing. <laughs> this is no reason for that. Talks about it. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> Um, I think that breath is actually the most underutilized leadership tool in the world. Mm -hmm. 
I think that if we were to really understand how changing our breath changes our nervous system and changes how we show up, then this idea of, you know, that your mom told you about take two deep breaths before you answer your brother or whatever, whatever, or that your coach tells you to do, all of a sudden it makes sense. You actually change which nervous, which part of your nervous system is operating by changing your breath. And that can either happen to us. We can start, you know, just responding to what's going on for us and it just happens. Or we can happen to it and we can decide, oh, I, I could really use the capacity of my parasympathetic nervous system right now. I think I'll call it in. Mm-hmm. And we act as if um, things sweep over us without our being able to do anything about them. But actually, our breath is there for us all the time. So it's the first genius. Yeah. yeah. The second genius. Um, Pamela, I love that you notice that you're holding your breath when you're triggered, right? Like just that idea is so useful. You hold your breath. Of course you do because you're trying to protect yourself. That's what triggering is. But now can you breathe, you know, five times deeply, all of a sudden it changes your state. So that's the second one. The, the third genius is about now, now we've breathed. Now we also have to move our bodies right? One of the things that happens is we've got all these stress hormones and they build up in us. And because the stress hormones are actually meant to be burnt off through physical activity, that's what they're about, right? For most of human history, when we were really stressed out, it meant we needed to fight or run or do something active. Right now, we just like write on post-it notes or send an email, (laughs) this is not active enough to burn through any of these stress hormones, right? So we have to actually move our body in a way that um, can burn through some of these stress hormones. And I talk to my clients all the time about these simple bodily processes, breathing, moving, sleeping. Sleeping is the fourth genius. Um, I don't know about you, but during COVID, I watched the, the meeting creep on global teams become really extraordinary. And I saw people on the phone in their Zoom box when I knew it was 1 a.m., 3 a.m. I couldn't really tell, are they up at the end of a short night's sleep or are they up before the beginning of a short night? Like, I couldn't even tell what what they thought their bodies were doing. Um, And I've been more and more clear with myself and with my clients that sleeping is actually a core leadership move as well. That if we don't sleep, we cannot show up. Uh, The the research on sleeping is plentiful, let's just say. Um, And once again, it activates our sense of threat and it, Uh, sleeplessness um, activates our sense of threat, makes us both less trusting of others and also others trust us less when we've slept less. It's fascinating. Wow. So there are these first, the first half of the geniuses are like very embodied. And then we get more into the emotional space in the second half. 
Mm-hmm. Do you want me to carry on? Yeah, please do. I'm talking so much. Thank I you, Richard. And, and there I'm watching you. I'm grateful. Um, I love, I love Richard's dare to be calm as well. This is, uh, I love, I love this tagline. Um, so, so then I deal, I deal um, with this question of, okay, so now we've kind of set up our body for success. Now, how do we create the, the conditions around us that are going to make a difference? Uh, and this is where I, we talk so much about emotions. We often think of emotions as kind of like the, like the weather, right? Like they arise and they pass and maybe they're nice and maybe they're not nice, but there's kind of nothing we can do about them except wait for the storms to pass. Um, but actually there's awfully good research that talks about emotions are really the sensations we have plus the story we make about those sensations. That's what they are. Well, we can do something about that, right? Because we just made up a story. We could just make up a different story and we could seek to tell ourselves a different story about our emotions. And so we talk specifically about how do we create the conditions for some of the emotions that are great for us and go out and fetch them and let go of the conditions of some of the emotions that are less good for us. Mm-hmm. And specifically, we talk about um, how do we get into that like experimenting curious place, right? Can we go after that thing that is filled with the joy of not knowing? We talk about how do we, how do we fill ourselves with a sense of wonder or awe, awe, you know, which is so incredibly good for the nervous system. Um, We talk about how do we laugh more? One of the things that COVID really unsettled was how much time we spend laughing. And it turns out that makes tons of sense because laughter is actually a, a social phenomenon. It happens much more often in groups and it's a socially social signaling mechanism. And if we're muted in our Zoom box, we don't hear each other laugh very much. And um, that's not very good for our nervous systems. And then the last thing we talk about is loving. How do we create the conditions to do that thing that I think is the most important of all human ways of being. How do we get more connected to each other, more connected to ourselves? And how do we, how do we actually create the conditions in our lives for more, having more love around? It doesn't mean you need to move into a house with 12 friends, but <laughs> there are ways we can change our lives that welcomes love more deeply in. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate you're going over those eight at a high level. We've got a few questions. What's your um, favorite resource for sleep research? There's the best book um, I found is a book called Why We Sleep. Yeah. And if you give me just a moment, I'm going to remember who wrote it. I know. Um, I book. I probably have it here somewhere. It's... Uh, I, I give it to the leaders I work with now, and then they don't show Matthew, up at meetings after Matthew nine. Walker. Matthew there Walker. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, it's brilliant. It is brilliantly written. Um, the guy is, uh, uh, is he an MD? Yeah, he's an MD. He's a sleep researcher. Um, he's an MD. He's a sleep researcher. He writes it from a, a research perspective. 
it's it is the best book I've read on sleep as well. It's his life's work, right? And I give it to you know how you have um, some some leaders you work with who love to read stuff. Yeah. I just gave this book to them because they they one of the things I, I tell the leaders I work with is you have to act during the day as if sleep is one of your accomplishments, right? It's one of the things you need to be planning around and dealing with because if we, we tend to think of the work day inside whatever hours they are, but we almost always think of the work day as those hours that we're awake. <laughs> Actually, the work day also includes the hours you're asleep, right? Because you cannot, you cannot show up yeah. without without dealing with the sleep part. Yeah. So we've got another question I'd love to address um, in the chat box. It, it says like, Jenna says, I have a client who tells me using breath, deep or slow, doesn't work for her and it's too difficult. It makes her start crying as she has a, is currently dealing with a lot of grief. Any advice? Yeah, I... I mean, the, the thing that your client is trying to do is not feel herself. Um, breath, breath brings us into in touch with, in, into a new understanding of ourselves because it slows us down. And, and, and there are times when we need to not do that, right? This is why we have these two nervous systems and why they behave the way they behave is because sometimes it is dangerous to, to actually feel ourselves. Um, but it's more dangerous to keep not feeling ourselves. And so whatever your client needs to do to find a safe space where she can be with whatever is going on for her, uh, ultimately we need, to, we need to deal with that. There are plenty of people for whom some breathing practices are problematic. Um, if you have a client with a panic disorder, um, sometimes box breath, um, you know, where you, where you count and breathe can begin to activate panic, which is exactly the wrong direction, obviously. Um, so, so people need to find their own way um, and need to find the, the thing that works for them. I find that for most of my clients, having them put their hand on their stomach and just see if they can breathe in a way that makes their hand move. Um, sometimes putting a hand on the chest and a hand on the stomach and trying to make the hand on the chest move less and the hand on the stomach move more, then you don't have to get into counting and you don't have to get into the things that activate us, but you're moving the diaphragm and moving the diaphragm it awakens the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. So it's useful. Is there one of these geniuses that you feel like is um, the least accessed or the hardest to, to exercise? I think they're, I think, I think they're different for different ones of us. I think there are ones that we kind of go to and that you, when, when I say it, you think, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then there are other ones that um, when I talk about it, people will say, well, that's not a very businessy kind of a thing, or is that really appropriate or um, whatever way they might have. And that shows it's probably not that well accessed by you. 
Yeah. Okay. So Michael's asking, can we get a quick list of the eight geniuses? He missed a couple. Yes. You got it. Um, Shall I just say them to you, Michael? Here we go. Noticing, breathing, moving, sleeping, experimenting, laughing, wondering, and loving. Yeah, yeah. And the experimenting was where you talked about emotions. And it's that you're experimenting with a new story. Is um, experimenting with a new story. Yeah. Okay. Richard, do you have a question or comment? I do. Thank you. It's an it's a really an honor to meet you, Jennifer. You changed my life years ago with changing on the job because it was through that book that I discovered the subject object distinction. Mm. And that turned me on to Bob Keegan's work. And I know that you and, and Bob and Lisa Leahy, you know, you guys have researched together. So it was, a, it was a huge moment for me. Thank you. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for letting me know. It means the world to me. You're welcome. My question is with respect to uh, adult developmental theory and the subject-object distinction, I'm wondering how, if you have a thought at the moment about how this new work about these eight geniuses fit into the concept of developmental theory, or is it maybe are we getting to a place where it's almost more spiral? Mm. That mm. as we move up, there's still there's still an opportunity to come back around and pick up learnings from below, from below, something like that. It's such a beautiful question, Richard. Um, so adult developmental theory is my kind of home base, as Richard said. Um, I was fortunate enough to do my doctorate um, with Bob Keegan and um, now a very long time ago, let's be clear. And, um, and here's, what I, here's what I'm gonna say. I, I used to really believe uh, that most of the changes in our lives uh, grew slowly as we kind of grew our way into them, sort of like um, sort of like noticing a tree that slowly, year after year, um, becomes taller and taller and taller. And I had this way of thinking about adult growth in that way. And the thing that this work has done for me is to help me understand the kind of rapid fire um, ways we can change our lives that are not, um, that are entwined with, of course, the slow moving change, but actually are much more accessible over the space of a day or a week, sort of like watching, um, you know, watching uh, 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 the tide change in the ocean, right? It's just on a different time span. It, it comes much faster. And, and I think the other thing I want to be able to do is hack into the nervous system to allow us to um, 
the word that's coming to my mind, which isn't that helpful, is fake. But it's not really faking, right? Like it's not really fake it till you make it. It really is. Can you find a way to scaffold yourself into some of the capacities that are naturally occurring later in the developmental journey? But can you find a series of tools or approaches? This is what I've devoted my whole career to, right? Is trying to figure out what are those series of tools or approaches that allow us to act as if we had this developmental capacity in the years before we actually have it. And working with the nervous system is a really fast um, way to make space for development. Mm. What a rich answer. <laughs> right? Thank you. Thank you for I hope that's it. not code for just long answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was, no, I got it. Thank you for including the word scaffolding. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. So I'm going to um, pause just a moment for like station identification, so to speak. One of the things that we don't do at Learning in Action is I normally wait until the very end and take two seconds and let you know what we do. So we've decided to move it a little bit to the middle. So I want to let you know about a free class that we're offering next Friday it's called Coach as Instrument, an Emergent Approach to Coaching. And it's um, based on this idea that we, uh, many of us feel like we're called to do this work. And this question is, if like, if we are called to do this work, then um, perhaps we are an instrument of that calling. And if we're an instrument of something greater, an instrument of something greater than ourselves, um, What's what's wanting to come through us to um, impact a, a, a coaching session? And what we're going to explore is um, this idea that what's wanting to uh, happen in a coaching session is already there, that it's um, it's already emergent and our work is yeah, I mean, it's it's great to have a lot of coaching skills and capabilities, and there's nothing that suffices from from working with what's already emergent in the field uh, between coach and client. So, if that's interests you at all, uh, uh, Dana's going to put a link in the chat box. So, okay, on to on to our episode. Okay. Um, yeah, so can we talk about loving and like what are practices around expanding and our capacity for loving? We could talk about this a long time. Um, the, the thing that my work has taught me over, you know, the, the decades that I've been doing this is actually that loving is, I believe, is our natural state, right? I, I believe it's like there's a, a, a giant river that flows through us and that the natural, the natural rule of the river is to flow. This is, um, this is as you said, what wants to happen, right? Uh, and at the same time, it's scary. Loving is scary. It's vulnerable. It's risky. And so we spend a lot of time protecting ourselves from it. 
And a lot of what I do as a coach is help just take the rubbish out of the river, um, move the detritus, the logs that we have put in, move it out and see how the relationships in an executive team, for example, um, begin to flourish when we take some of that stuff out. The, the relationships want to thrive. Uh, and so the question is, how do we create the conditions around us to make that more possible? Which is really a lot of it is about creating the conditions around us for us to stop getting in the way is a lot of it. Yeah. So like one of the, one of the practices I've noticed is when I teach leaders how to listen or coaches do a lot of my work is about helping people listen to each other better. People like each other a lot more when they listen to each other. It's, um, and it's almost instant, right? You take two people who have a pretty crappy relationship with each other and you say, okay, I just want you to go in and hold that guy's perspective. Just see if you can take it on. I give them some skills about that. And they come back and invariably they say, well, He's, act, he's, he's a good person, right? We had a lot that we could connect about. I, I, I had some things really wrong about him, you know? And what I didn't give the other person like good person training, right? I didn't change anything about the other person. All I did was help this person receive that human in a different way. And so, so the question is, how are we working on that? And then the other thing that comes up for me um, and then I'll stop and you can ask me or we can talk about it together. Um, the other thing that comes up for me is my clients very often say about a, a team building activity, you know, like we need to, we need to have the strategic this and we need to do this and we need to do this and we need to do this. And we need to look at budgeting and we need to get, make these decisions and we need to do all these things. And so could you like, could you like do some team building at dinner, you know, or like around the edges of the work that we have to do. And invariably they find that after they've invested some time in building their relationships, deepening their relationships with each other, the work just gets so much easier, right? The, the, the conflict, the arguments, the um, defending of my own patch, that stuff disintegrates. And so the challenge that I am offering to the folks I work with is like, what if you centered that? What if you centered the relationship building and you knew that that was not just a like, feel good activity, but it's actually an important business enabler, right? It makes it possible for us to do our work when our relationships were strong. That was harder to, um, to talk to people about before COVID separated us. Now, everybody understands this. When I say this, they say, oh yes, because we've gotten so transactional, we've gotten so, um, we've gotten so polarized simply because we've forgotten that the other people are humans. Loving is remembering that the other people are humans. Mm. Yeah. So if you were working with a client and you got a sense, how would, what would come up in a coaching 
engagement or relationship that would lead you to sense that they could be expanding their capacity to love and listen? How would you know? And what would, how would you work with them specifically around that? It's a great question. I, I tend to know when they bring me a relational difficulty or when they talk about somebody in their lives who, who's difficult. Um, uh, if we think of somebody in our lives as um, an idiot or um, selfish or like a moron, like whatever words we might use that are these like dismissive this person is a thorn in my side kind of words. Um, we've stopped connecting with that person as a person. That's what that means. Uh, and so often what clients want to do is they want to work through a tactic to get convince that person that they're right. Right. They want to like practice a conversation where they convince that person that they're right, or they want to, practice a conversation where they give that person feedback to show them that they're wrong or whatever it might be. I understand all these things, right? This is what we're, this is what our body tells us to do, but it's not, it's not that helpful. And so instead we practice, how, how would I find out more about this person? How would I open myself up to liking this person more? And it's really awesome when you ask that question. So how could you lean into maybe even loving this person a little bit. My clients are like, no way, absolutely not. This guy is such a jerk and I don't like this. And it's like, there. this idea is like, I won't like this person. I, I won't, I won't. I will not like honor this person's terrible behavior with my affection in some way. But we know that when we honor the terrible behavior of say our children with our affection, their terrible behavior changes. We know that if we honor the terrible behavior of a friend who's in a, in a bad place with our affection, our friend stops being in a bad place. We know this, right? We just turn it off at, at work. We just turn it off. And so the question is, how do you turn it on? So this is the, this is what I ask. Mm. Love that. Um, let me turn it back to the audience to see like what questions you have, or if there's an, another genius you'd like to explore further. Let's see. Yeah. Love the Joe question. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for this uh, today. I've taken pages of notes. It's been great. And interestingly, um, you know, we're talking about how to apply this in business. I attended a uh, Gartner sales conference, Gartner research sales conference uh, two weeks ago, and they've coined the term drag and they were applying it to sales, but they says it applies across the whole organization. And uh, people are feeling uh, disconnected at work, exhausted, uh, distracted, struggling to focus. And they had hard statistics on the impact on quota attainment. So revenue uh, uh, within business. And they're, they're saying, don't focus on the recognition and rewards and all that. 
you got to reduce the drag. And, uh, yeah. and they talked about the number one way of doing this was, um, uh, or the, the things around drag was um, uh, development opportunities. People don't know what their career paths are and they don't feel companies are investing them. The thing that ties in well with this, the second biggest complaint from employees was that they feel like they're a cog in the machine that they don't matter because their bosses are impatient, distracted, talk over them, all the things that you were just uh, uh, talking about. So that term drag, I mean, this has a impact on bottom line results for organizations. So it's not going in and talking about breathing and these other things, right? It's about the results of the organizations yeah. embedding. So this is so timely. Uh, and uh, Gardner's research was um, uh, reinforces everything that you're saying today with uh, impact on business results that they're experiencing. Yeah, that's super helpful, Joe. It, it really is, um, you know, I've, every difficulty is also an opportunity, right? And people are at the end of their rope. And you see it, they're, they're enough at the end of the rope so that they can't pretend they're not at the end of their rope anymore, right? Like it's the yeah. end of the rope. They can't make believe anymore. And because they can't make believe anymore, we're seeing these real effects. People are quitting, people are um, getting sicker, people are disengaged, people are doing all these things. Uh, and so suddenly these human characteristics that have been necessary for us always are, as you say, real business concerns. And leaders are much more easily... Um, because they feel it in their own bodies. They're much more easily persuaded that this is a useful thing to pursue. And then they see the results so quickly as teams begin to come together. Um, I, I have, I, I allow myself a little bit of hope that says that the conditions that we've been through are actually clearing the way for us to be in business together in a different way. Mm. Yeah, and the other interesting point they made that ties directly to this, the third biggest complaint was that um, uh, employees aren't getting good feedback from their manager, right? And um, uh, the, the survey, it's something like 98% of managers say they give effective feedback all the time. 60% of employees say that, uh, that they haven't had any feedback in the last 12 months. Well, if your nervous system is activated, you're not going to give good feedback, effective feedback. And if your nervous system is activated, you're not going to receive feedback, That's right? True. So it's That's just it's huge, you know. So people could create programs on uh, providing effective uh, 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 feedback and tie it to accountability. This is how you do it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. How do we let each other in? Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Joe. Karen, question? Yes. <clears throat> Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a great pot in our. Thank you both so much. <clears throat> Jennifer, I'm a little scared because I don't have this question fully formed, but I know from listening to you a lot that you're going to be very nice to me and not humiliate <laughs> me. So, I'm taking a big risk. Um, Thanks, Karen. But I want, yeah, so sweet. I just love your voice and how you lead <laughs> with that. I really do. Both of you, actually. I like Allison's too. But anyway, um, 
So here's the deal. This is where I'm, I'm a little on the emotional genius, the, the, that one with the sensations plus a story. So I, my experience is that that can help. And, but then, but then this emotional stuff also, the, the emotional injuries might sometimes take a little more than just popping into another story. And I'm wondering sure. if you could speak and, and you're nodding so I can, that's, sure. that's where I, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, really. This idea that our emotions are a story and that we could tell another story is more like a seed, right? That grows over time. And I think it's a seed that transforms us over time as we hold this idea. Um, but it is, uh, I would be the last person in the world who would suggest like when somebody is frustrated, that we can say, oh, this frustration is a story you're telling yourself about this. So just dispense with it, right? When one of the points we try to make in the book is the first thing we can do from our emotions is learn from them. You know, if we're frustrated, it's because something we care about is not happening. Um, but if we can understand and learn from it, then we can start to then investigate it. So I'm frustrated. That means there's something I care about that's not happening. What is the thing I care about? Actually touching mm. into what I care about is so much more productive than focusing on what I'm frustrated about, right? So we can bring our bodies along for that ride. It's not a fast ride. I think it happens over the course really of years is letting this idea change us. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's one of the most powerful transformational um, moves we can make, even though it's slow. It's more in the, um, you know, Richard was asking me that really good question earlier. It's more in the developmental scale of the tree than in the rapid scale of the, uh, of the tides. Um, but we have to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. That sounds good. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for being brave enough to put up your hand. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just double click on, on all of that. Um, that's the, so I'm on the faculty of narrative coaching with, with David Drake as well. And so much of that work is also around um, examining, yeah, the story we're telling us ourselves. And also, what does that mean in terms of our identity? The person that we are identifying as, who is the person who has that story? And then we can begin to, the fingers kind of point at what wants, what in us wants to be attended to and what's the story that we're making up about ourselves and who is it that's telling that story? And then what is that about my identity that maybe wants to, that was shaped by somebody else that I may want to reshape myself? Yeah, great question. Evelina? Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, what really spoke to me about what you said today is about you trying to find rapid fire ways to really hack our immune system. 
um, because I feel like I'm on this journey of trying to find, you know, hacks around how to accelerate leadership development teams. And there's two things that, that you said that I was really curious for you to dig a little bit more into. One was that you said leaders are leading the nervous systems of others. And so I'm really curious about, I'm assuming that you probably need to help leaders develop that capacity first before they could be really intentional about shifting how they lead other people's nervous systems. And I'm wondering how you go about teaching, coaching them around that. And then the other thing you said was, um, you know, for those leaders that might be calling others idiots and lazy or whatever, um, I'm thinking specifically if a leader is, is leading from a very reactive place and, and, and someone that's really difficult to coach to really touch into love, when they react to you, like you were saying, um, well, that's not even possible for me. What, how do you help them to overcome that, especially if they're a highly reactive leader? Great questions. Um, so to your first question, your first question is about leaders leading nervous systems, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the, I'm just going to grab your Zoom box and move it up so that, that I'm looking at you. Um, you put your hand down. Um, the leaders are leading other people's nervous systems, right? Whether, whether they know it or not, whether they're good at it or not, we have all worked for that boss who, um, who came into the office in the morning and we felt more anxious, right? We've all had that experience. Mm-hmm. That was your boss's leadership, nervous system leading your nervous system, right? Like this is, this is what that is. Um, so the, oh, here we are. Um, um, so the question isn't, are they doing it? The question is, can we help them do it better? So uh, I haven't had any leaders tell me that this is not a thing, right? When I say, have you had this boss? Have you had this experience? All the leaders I've ever worked with say, yes, I've absolutely had that experience. And when I say you're doing that to others, like, can you mm-hmm. imagine that, that this is also you? That They realize very fast that this is also them. So mm-hmm. then the question is, um, okay, so if you're leading in this way that's invisible to you, would you like it to become more visible? And if there are a series of invisible tools on your desk that you're right now not using, would you like to be able to see them and use them? And, uh, and people say yes. So this is my, this is my experience is that, um, most of the leaders I work with now know that their old ways are not working. Mm-hmm. They, they know that something has to change. Um, this is an awesome way to help them to hack in your, your, does that help with the first question? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, your second question is about these leaders who are very reactive. So, I try, I'm sure you try to make our coaching conversation spaces where they can breathe, right? Where their nervous system can let down. And a lot of what I try to teach them to do with each other, I, I try to do in our sessions. One of the things I've discovered um, myself is I have clients, the clients, 
sort that you're describing, right? I get frustrated with them and I get reactive back. And I think, why aren't you listening? And blah, blah, blah. you know, I have like exactly mm-hmm. the same thoughts. The, the same thing is happening between us that is happening between them mm-hmm. and others. Um, and so if I can change, the first thing I do is I work to love them more. This is my practice, mm-hmm. right? I see how do I need to listen to them and be more in their story and take their perspective more profoundly so that I can understand the, the engine room of their discontent and difficulty. Um, and I, 90% of the time that makes things just go easier. And once they've experienced it in our relationship, then we can start helping them experience it in a different relationship. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that, Jennifer. You're welcome. Awesome. Lovely. Well, I want you to know, Pamelia, I see your hand and it's we're at the end of our time. And um, sorry we didn't get to you this time. And I so appreciate the great comments you made in the chat box. So um, thank you all so much. Get Jennifer's book. The best way to learn more about what Jennifer was talking about today is get her book, Unleash Your Complexity genius available all the places i love that how'd you come up with the image on the cover i love it i'm so glad you love it this was my editor my editor we went through three billion images and then just somehow we we came to this one it's very joyful isn't it it is so jennifer thank you so much for your generosity today this was really um really a lovely conversation and it feels like a conversation that need that like the whole world's nervous system needs <laughs> thank you Alison. i think so too thank you so much for hosting me and asking me such beautiful questions and bringing me these beautiful humans to hang out with